0: Thanks, Hans. If you want to grab out your outlines, you find some space to be able to take some notes as we think through what this passage has to say about being good and why we just can't be good. Why don't we ask God to help us as we think through that uh, this morning. Let's pray. Lord God, you know where our hearts are at. You know each and every one of us and what this last week has been like. And you also know what matters most. And you see the world rightly, for you made the world and are in control of it. So, as we come to your word now, as we've just heard it read, help us to understand your word and to see ourselves through your eyes. By your spirit, we ask you'd shape us and mold us and help us to understand what really matters and how we might respond. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you had to pick a motto for our age, a kind of a few words to put up that kind of describe what we ought to be like as people. I want to put it to you that our motto for New Zealand at the moment might be, be kind. You see those words everywhere. I saw them on the motorway the other day. I didn't take this photo, so don't worry. I found it on the internet. But they're telling all motorway drivers to be kind. We obviously need to hear that. In a COVID-covered world, the greatest good, the greatest virtue seems to be kindness. It seems to be how we evaluate what we've done in life and who we are and what we'll do next. How can I be kind? How can I be good? But it's it's nothing new. For millennia, people across the globe have focused their lives on doing exactly this. Random acts of kindness. They're important, aren't they? You know, paying it forward. Uh, They even crowned March the 15th, Good Deeds Day. Did you know that? Good Deeds Day is March the 15th, which is kind of ironic. Because if we just make one day Good Deeds Day, it means I don't have to be good all the other ones. I can just do it that day, and then we're like free from being good, so it kind of goes against helping people to do good things. I'm not quite sure what the thinking there is. But secularism, socialism, religion, just simple simple common sense, all point us to the fact that doing good is kind of good. People kind of have this built into us. But what I want to put to you today is that to focus on doing good is actually the worst thing you can do. Focus on doing good is the worst thing you can do. So the whole idea of being good and being kind is fraudulent. It promises peace and happiness and a world that will be amazing, but it cannot and will not deliver. I mean, just look at the history of the world. Look at what we have done as humanity. The world is filled full of problems, of things that aren't good, of people that have not acted in kind ways. If the solution was just be kind, do more good, do you think it would have taken the last one, two, three, five thousand years uh, for us to be able to work it out? You think we'd be able to crack it by now, right? Oh, it was just being good. If only I'd known then we could have just done it, ah, finally, someone's told me. No, the solution to the problem of the world can't be, we just all need to be kind, we just all need to do good, because it hasn't been working. We've all been trying to do it, but the problem's still here, and I know we fail, because I know I fail. (laughs) Just this week, I thought I'd I'd show my love to Sarah uh, with some acts of service. I don't know if you've looked at the Love Languages book that talks about different ways we like to be loved. Uh, I think it's a a helpful book. It's got some helpful things that help Sarah and I after our first year of marriage work out why we weren't feeling love from one one another. I was loving in the ways I wanted to be loved, and she was loving in the ways she wanted to be loved. So Sarah was loving me by cleaning the kitchen. I'm like, I don't care about a clean kitchen. You know, I'm words of affirmation and, and physical touch. Just give me a kiss and tell me you love me and the world is a great place. But Sarah, she's, she's acts of service, which means I've actually got to do stuff. Oh. <laughs> so now after almost 20 years of marriage, I'm like, I oh, know Sarah away camping with some friends uh, for a couple of nights. She was coming back and I'm like, what I'll do is I'll declutter our house. We've been talking about it for like nine years. So I thought on my day off, I'll just go through the house, and I thought, I know Sarah doesn't like surprises, so I'll call her and tell her I'm doing it, at which point she told me how to do it. I'm like, no, no, you don't get to tell me how. am serving you in this way. And, uh, and so then I went through it and just got angrier and angrier and angrier as the day went on. There's just so much junk, especially if you have kids. I don't know if you have kids. They just stuff stuff everywhere. I just shut the door to the girls' room. I was like, I cannot handle it. They have this, this, this habit of collecting things and putting them in little boxes and being like, oh, I've got this little box, and I need another little box of stuff. And they're all filled full of tissues. It's like, tissues? Why do they need so many tissues? I'm like, this is, I, 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 shut, I literally shut the door and went, that's too far. Too far for me. But anyway, Sarah came home from being away and I was like, this is going to be great. She's going to feel really loved. She walked in the door. First thing she did, she'd been camping, right? She's pretty tired. It's about 10 o'clock at night coming home. She walks in the door and just dumps all her stuff on the table. And I'm like, don't put it there. I've cleaned the house. At which point Sarah's like, I'm just tired, all right? And I'm like snapping at her, biting her head off because like, I want to be kind and loving to her. So I can't be good. I, I could try to be kind, and I was trying to be kind, but in my trying to be kind to Sarah, I bit her head off, and she's been grumpy, then we're having discussions, if you know what I mean. And um, <laughs> The moral of the story is, even when we try to be kind, we're shockers. You know it, I know it. We just invent ways of being nasty to one another. Not that we mean to, but it just comes out of us. But we keep persisting with this idea that the aim of life is to be kind, is to be good. And the way to be right with God is to just be a better person. When it comes to our relationship with God, we end up treating him like Santa Claus. You know, We make a list, or maybe we get his list from the Bible, and we think that the Bible is a list that he checks twice, trying to find out if we've been naughty or nice. right? And we have this arrangement with God where we think, if I do good things, then maybe God will bless me. You know, have you ever found yourself there? God, I I promise you I'll do this thing and then you can make that thing happen. we try to arm twist God into saying, God, you do this thing and that'll make my life better if if I'm good, if I'm better. But the surprising thing we find as we come to meet Jesus in the pages of history and the pages of the Bible is that trying to be good, particularly good enough for God, is actually bad. It's actually saying, I don't need you, God. I want nothing to do with you. See, Jesus didn't come for good people. You know why? Because there's none of us. There's none of them, us. That was bad. See, my internal desire is to think that I'm good. We all think we're good, but we're not. Jesus came for those who can't be good, at least good enough for Him. Our picture of Jesus is so often this blonde-haired, blue-eyed, white-robed pretty boy on some plate or glass-stained window with a plate behind his head glowing, going, oh! You know, he loves hanging out with all the good people, and of course he'd be good. But that, my friends, is a fairy tale. That is not what the Bible says. Listen to what Jesus is like from the words of Mark, who was there and who saw. Mark chapter 2, verse 15. While Jesus was reclining at the table in Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who were following him. When the scribes, who were Pharisees, saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? See, tax collectors, they were con artists. They were thieves that would rob people as much as they possibly could. The very way you became a tax collector in the, in the first century was to tell the Roman authorities how much tax you would collect, even before you collected it. You know, I'll give you X amount of tax. And then you'd go around from the town and you'd collect the tax from people, and whatever you could get over that bid that you told the Roman authorities, you could keep for yourself, So that's what they were doing. They were rip-off merchants, trying to keep as much money as they could. Uh, Now, the scribes and the Pharisees, on the other hand, they were teachers of God's law. They were the upholders of truth and morals. They were the people who kind of walked around with their noses a little higher than everyone else, kind of looking down at other people, going, we've got life sorted. We've got the rules to life. This is how we want to live. They're They're the kind of epitome of religion. They went to the furthest extreme to cover every letter of the Old Testament law, to do what they considered to be good, to do it exactly the way they thought they could. So they made up all sorts of rules to try and keep them doing good. They had rules for washing their hands, rules for what was classed as work and what wasn't work, and when you could do it. They had rules you couldn't even spit on a Saturday, which was the Sabbath day, because that would turn over dirt in the ground, and that was work. Whoa, no work for us today. No spitting on Saturday, everyone. They're what you call religious with a capital R. They were religious do-gooders. Now, tax collectors and sinners, they were socially seen in the same basket as we would see prostitutes today. But here, Jesus was hanging out with, Jesus was rubbing shoulders with, Jesus was eating with the socially reprehensible. So can you imagine what's going through these Pharisees' heads, these keepers of good, the keepers of God's people, when they, when they see Jesus and his followers eating with his tax collector, Levi? And he's morally questionable friends. It doesn't fit our mould of doing good or of of being around good people. Now, there's a sense where we today go, maybe this is what being kind means: hanging around with with people that aren't as good as us. <laughs> uh, you know, it, it might be to eat with someone and to associate with them, but. Eating in the first century like this, kind of reclining at the table and inviting someone into your house, is not like just having a, a kind of a, a token meal on the side where you might share a McDonald's burger with, with someone who's kind of not as well seen in the social circles. No, eating a meal with someone's like inviting them on holidays with you. It's like saying, yeah, we're together in this. You know, we're going on holidays together, we're hanging out together. It's that sort of thing. It's saying, us and them, we're, we're in this together. Jesus assembles his team of leaders Not from those with moral high ground or even those on the up and up that are getting better and and more and more good and more and more kind, but he assembles them from tax collectors and sinners. Levi would also be known as Matthew, who would write the first book of the New Testament. He's a tax collector. Why? Why would Jesus do that if he is good, if he is God, as he claims? Why would he show such compassion? Why would he hang out with these people? A few years ago, I heard a story about a little girl named Lisa. Uh, She'd been suffering from a fairly serious disease, and her only chance of recovery was a blood transfusion uh, from her five-year-old brother. Uh, Her brother had actually had the same disease earlier and had recovered miraculously. And so in his blood, he had the antibodies, and the fact that uh, he was her brother meant that she could get a blood transfusion, and hopefully that would fix this issue that she had. And so the family, they chatted with their son, five years old. The doctor explained the situation in kind of simple terms for him and asked if he'd been willing to donate his blood to his sister. And the boy hesitated for a moment, took a deep breath and says, I'll do it if it will save Lisa. And so the transfusion progressed and he was there on the bed and he smiled as he looked at his sister and his sister smiled looking back at him. And as the transfusion came to the end, the little boy's smile faded He began to look quite concerned in bed. And then he plucked up the courage and asked the doctor this question. Will I die right away or will it take some time? So he thought that giving his blood meant that he would die. And he was willing to die and give his life for his sister because he loved her and cared for her. He was willing to do it. As Jesus steps into the world, He doesn't come to a world that doesn't need him. He comes to a world that's on a life support system of people that aren't good, of people that have turned their backs on God. And he willingly says, I will give my life for yours. I will lay down my life so that you can have the perfect life I'm offering, that you can be forgiven. He comes not because we're all okay going, oh, thanks, Jesus. Don't really need too much. We're good. I've got it all right. I'm pretty kind. No worries. He comes because we are all in grave danger from ourselves and the way that we've treated God. Jesus says in chapter 2, verse 17, It's not those who are well who need a doctor, but those who are sick. I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. The one who spoke and creation came into being the one who heals the sick and gives sight to the blind, the one who claims to have the highest authority the world has ever seen, chooses to extend his love, not to his own family like that little boy did out of his heart, but to his enemies, to people that are not good, to people that have rejected him, have turned their backs on him, that to God are repulsive because, well, let's be honest, we so often push God aside and try and run our lives our own way, don't we? Jesus is living out what so many of us don't yet recognize. We are all sick. We are all morally questionable when it comes to God and our relationship with Him. The social horror of of God, the creator of all, the one who is perfect, who spoke and creation came into being, associating with us. Associating with sinners and tax collectors is an illustration of what Jesus does for all humanity. So his death, it wasn't a surprise to him. It wasn't like he, he came to earth and was like, whoa, this is not going well. And then the cross happened and he's like, didn't expect that. In, in Mark chapter 10, Jesus would say, he came to give his life as a ransom for many. He came knowing that he needed to give his life. The surprise isn't that Jesus died. The surprise for us is that none of us are good None of us are good enough for God. All of us are morally reprehensible before him. And yet he still comes and dies in our place. I don't think we get that. I think we so often just move through life thinking, yeah, I'm pretty good. We look on the surface and we're kind of clean. But deep down, we're far from it. But what Jesus does is amazing love. If it were a news headline, it would say radical love. The king of the world saves the scum of the earth. Then in brackets, Rowan. Except put your name as well, you know. <laughs> now what that shows us is, as you looked at Jesus, nothing is too much for him. There are often two lies that we, we kind of think about with regard to how good we are. One is that, look, I'm too far gone for God. A few weeks ago, I shared a story of a friend of mine who wouldn't come to Sarah at my wedding because she was afraid that the church would fall down on her uh, when she came to the wedding because she'd been such a bad person. She was like, I'm too far gone. My past is too dark. Uh, My life is too broken. God can't want me. I'm not good enough for God. Well, actually, there's something that's right about that. We aren't good enough for God, but no one is too far gone. Jesus takes tax collectors and these, these morally and socially wrong people, and you see them come to him and trust him. And he walks alongside them, and they are the ones that are changed and spread this hope of life that lasts forever across the whole world. No one is too far gone for Jesus. Just look at this scene. They're socially repulsive, yet he calls them to follow him. He allows Matthew to write one of the the main um, articles on, the main accounts of his life. No one is too far gone for God. Do not believe the lie. But the other lie that's on view is the lie that the Pharisees put forward. It's that acceptance from God requires you to be good see it's the same lie but it's it's pointed at someone else and if i'm honest it's the one i'm most tempted to buy two things happens when we believe that lie firstly we start looking down on others and thinking oh they're not the type of person that would be good enough for god they're not the type of person that would be a christian they're living a very different life and as we say that we kind of under our breath never out loud go but i am you know i'm i'm good enough i mean god god's i mean god's lucky to have me on his team Look at the way I do so many good things. But we do, don't we? We miss the fact that we are just as ugly as the person we are looking down at, if not more. They recognize where they're at, perhaps. But we think we're better. We're in just as much need of forgiveness as everyone else in this world. We do it socially. We do it with people who who are following other religions. Or even other brands of Christianity. I'm not like them. I've got the Bible right. I'm not like them. I don't follow that kind of weird view. I'm not in that type of cult. Deep down, we find ourselves thinking that we're just a bit better than others. And we think that makes us a little bit better with God, but it doesn't. You know, we do the right thing as we preach through the Bible. I am a good person. I come to church every Sunday. I even give money to missionaries that go to Japan. Do you know the needs in Japan are huge? I'm so great. Friends, we need to look to the radical love of Jesus. He extends it to the ugliest of the ugly. He extends it to you and me. To us who consistently want to live life our way. He might not do it verbally, but we push God aside and think, I don't need God in my life, really. No offense to God. I'm just going to live my life my way. But if his God is in control of the world, then we must treat him as God. It's like saying to your mom, no offense, mom. I just don't want you in my life. I nothing against you. I just want to live my life without you. But She's your mom. He's your God. He made you and sustained you and he loves you. But what's so amazing about Jesus is that he steps into the world to show us his love, to die in our place and face the penalty that we deserve so we could be forgiven, not because we're good, but because he is. And when you recognize that Jesus is offering you his perfect life, he died in your place, he faced faced the penalty that you deserve, then that requires a radical response not in order to earn his love but in order to understand what he's done for us in order to live in light of this great thing that he's done it's a call to a radical new life a radical new life so these pharisees right they were religious nutters they really were Uh, i'm trying not to look down my nose at them probably am a little bit that's my own sinfulness there too Uh, but they were committed to kind of being separate from everyone else Not compromising. That's what Pharisee meant. It meant kind of they were set apart in some ways. They're about 1% of the population of Israel, and they set the tone for religion throughout the whole nation of Israel. And it's typical of all religion. They love the laws of God more than God himself. They love the laws of God more than God himself. They treat their own rules as though they were the very rules of God. So when Jesus comes along and says, look, I've come to forgive sins, like only God and God alone can forgive forgive sins. and Jesus like, yep, I'm God. (laughs) I can do that. But you can't do that. They hate the fact that Jesus welcomes in these people who are morally and socially unlike them and and brings in them to, to, to God's people. They hate the fact that Jesus didn't follow their rules about fasting on certain days and keeping the Sabbath. They're like, you're not keeping our rules. In a sense, you can stand back here and see like the kind of, you know, the, the, the eight-year-old who's going, no, you can't play with me anymore. And that's what they're doing. So they ask Jesus, trying to trick him up, why don't your followers, or they ask his followers, why don't you fast like the other followers of religious people do? Why do you break our rules, in other words? So Jesus answers their question with another statement about who he is. Look at verse 19. Jesus said to them, the wedding guests cannot fast while the groom is with them, can they? As long as they have the groom with them, they cannot fast. But the time will come when the groom will be taken away for them. And they will fast on that day. In other words, you don't fast when you're at the wedding. At a wedding, it's a great celebration. We had two weddings in our church yesterday. And there are great celebrations of two people coming together at each wedding uh, and, and celebrating uh, this new family unit. And there, there are time for great celebration. You don't go to a wedding kind of worried about counting calories. or well, you shouldn't. You don't B-Y-O salad. I'm going to come to this wedding. Oh, no, thanks. I'll put, you know, the eight-course buffet aside, and I've just got my little salad I'm going to eat. It's a time to celebrate, to enjoy one another with food, and to enjoy this moment. And these Pharisees are saying, oh, we need to fast, and fasting is this thing that they used to do, waiting for uh, when, when a good time would come. Jesus is like, Have you seen who's here? The wedding is now. I am God the Son. I've come to earth. I've come to die. Do you not recognize what's standing? Who is standing in front of your face? See, they knew their Old Testament, but they'd forgotten it. In Isaiah 54, Isaiah says this, For your maker is your husband, the Lord Almighty is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. He is called the God of the earth. Jesus is saying, why would my disciples fast when the bridegroom is here? It's me. I am the fulfillment of this, the one who would come and buy back the people from their sin, who would come and die in their place and rise again. They're so caught up in their rule keeping and thinking they need to be good and how to do it, that they've missed Jesus. I wonder if that's you. I wonder if at times in your life you're so caught up with being a good person and trying to do the right thing that you miss the fact that you can't be good enough for God and you miss the God who's staring you in the face saying, Come to me. Stop standing on the sides. Come and trust me. Well, there's a whole heap of things that Jesus then points out with his new wine and wineskins, saying you can't just change things, you've got to have a whole new thing that happens. These Pharisees, he uses these illustrations to point out that these Pharisees were making up rules left, right and center. They were extending their rules to their traditions and, and, and making religion in a capital R. But they missed the heart. This fasting was there to remind people of their dependence of God, but these guys had turned it into a legalistic ritual. These Pharisees, like all religious people, love the laws of God more than God himself. So all these laws, they were like the old clothes and the old wineskin. You can't tie, sew a new patch of clothing to an old bit of clothes because it will shrink and then break. You can't put new wine in old wineskins. It will break them. Jesus is saying, you had this way of acting before that God had said, this is what to do. You'd taken it to the nth extreme and missed me. Now I've come. God in the flesh is here. And you're going, I always want to do the old thing again just want to go back to keeping our rules because it was easy and we're kind of seen as the social head and the moral head of society. When you get who Jesus is and you get what he's offering, the new and amazing forgiveness, Jesus' death in your place, life that lasts forever. We see that the whole Old Testament is pointing forward to who he is and what he's about to do. You can't just bolt Jesus on to your old way of thinking. You can't fit him into your family traditions and say, yeah, I'm going to have a bit of Christianity with my normal bit of life. I'm just going to do life normally, then add on Jesus as a bit of a boost or a bit of an extra. What we see here is if you get who he is, he is God the Son. He has died for you. You can't be good enough for him. It's impossible, but he's been good enough for you. Then it changes how you respond. These Pharisees just wanted to fit Jesus in with their rather large set of rules and regulations. And my hunch is that's what we often want to do too. I want to see Jesus as a good teacher, a moral example, maybe even God the Son. I like what He offers, life forever, the idea of hope and security, of being connected to something bigger than just me here and now. And we treat Jesus like an accessory to our life, like that little rabbit's foot. Have you ever seen people that kind of have a rabbit's foot off their car mirror? No, anyone? Okay, uh, it's a particularly Maltese thing to do um, my old boss was Maltese and people would hang rabbit's foots off the mirror of their car it's like a good luck charm or people wear kind of bracelets and think oh if I wear this bracelet or a guardian angel necklace it'll, you know, they'll be looking after me and it'll be helpful and we, we take Jesus and add him on as an insurance policy to think oh it'll make my life better and I just keep moving on the way I was previously trying to be a good person but if you recognize who Jesus is we can't add him on we need to recognize we've got nothing and say that he is the king over all His way is the right way and so we trust that he's died in our place and he's risen again and we serve him as our king. Trying to do enough, to say enough, to serve enough, to arm twist God into helping us will will never achieve forgiveness. You can't be good. The idea to be kind, the idea to be a better person, you won't get there. You won't be perfect. So don't believe the lie. Trust that Jesus is king. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much that you've shown your love for us in Jesus. We recognize that we aren't perfect, that we aren't good. And that so often we try and make ourselves acceptable to you by being good people. We're sorry for the times that we've done that. Help us to recognize that our only hope is trusting in Jesus who died in our place and who rose again. Help us not to be like these Pharisees who, who want to keep the rules and just add Jesus in. But help us to come to Him as the perfectly good one. Help us to see the radical call that it is then to recognize who He is and therefore live for Him. Not in order to be saved, but because we have been saved. We ask Jesus will be front and center for our lives in every way. And if He isn't, that today you'd show us and you'd bring us to trust him. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon recording from Auckland EV. We hope you found it helpful. And if you'd like to find out more about Jesus or about church, we'd love to get in touch. So check out our website at aucklandev.co.nz for more details. Thanks for listening.